The reading this morning is taken from Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 3. can be found on page 1198. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their ways into homes and gain control over gullible women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Jannes and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers opposed the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because... As in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from who you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome. Good morning, everyone. Um, it's great. Oh, thanks. It's great to be here. I'm not going to be serenading you with any soul or jazz tunes this morning. I've got to come back in two weeks' time. Look forward to that. It really is going to be great. Um, I'm going to be speaking today, from, as Justin said, from this great little letter of 2 Timothy. It re- really packs a punch. Great little New Testament letter. In this series, we've called Run the Race. Now, I really think God's got some profound things to teach us this morning. So why don't we together, me included, come before our great God and humble ourselves and ask us to teach it. Ask him to teach us. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. Particularly, we thank you for this little book of 2 Timothy. Oh, Father, we're often distracted and our hearts are often elsewhere and look for satisfaction elsewhere. This morning, would you align our hearts with you? And help us to be humble and learn what you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. 
Amen. Well, a, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I took my five-year-old son, Josh, away for the weekend. I'm not much of a camper. Like, my version of camping is going to the dad and kids camp, right? Which is, everything's there for you. It's pretty easy. But I'm not really one to rough it. So I wanted to take, you know, my son away for, for a trip. So we went to a nice holiday house instead. Don't judge me. Um, we went, you know, went up to the coast, n- nice holiday house. And we, we just had a great time. You know, played board games, went fishing, didn't catch anything. I told him we were feeding the fish, son, feeding the fish. Um, we built fires, toasted marshmallows. Highlight of the weekend for him was we've been talking it up for weeks was watching Star Wars. But two nights in a row, we watched Star Wars, and he loved it. Honestly, though, I think the highlight for him was going home and rubbing it into his sis- younger sister that he got to watch and she didn't, right? You, if you've got kids, you know what that's like. Um, but really, it was just, all in all, it was a really great time. We had an awesome time. Now, it's, of course, great if you can get that one-on-one time with your kids, give them your undivided attention, which, let's face it, it's pretty hard to do. But a greater reason why I wanted to take um, little Joshy away, just me and him, was even from this early age, I'm, I'm trying to teach him to be a man of God, what it means to be a man of God. You know, I didn't really grow up with a dad, so I'm trying as hard as I can to be as intentional as I can about raising my son, our kids, to be men and women of God. Now, I mean, it's probably the most challenging thing I've ever done, my wife and I have ever done, is trying day, daily to model the gospel to our kids. It's tough, but it's worth it. And it's worth considering... What am I going to impart to my son, my kids? What are they going to remember me teaching them? You know, it might be a bit silly, but I often think if I uh, was there, ever had like a very short time to live, like a day or an hour or something, what would I say to my son, for instance? What would I say to him? What would I want him to remember above all else? Right, in a serious moment like that, all the shallow things kind of will fade away, don't they? And the important things become very clear. What would I say? Well, I'd want my son to know that I love him no matter what I'd said in the past. I love him. I'm proud of him, that he's got what it takes, that that I can see him as a great man of God in God's kingdom. And I'd also want to warn him. I'd want to say, look, life can be tough. It can be heartbreaking. But stand firm, son, and persevere to the end. Well, this is 2 Timothy. This is the little book that we're in at the moment. Paul, as Justin said, Paul, he's in prison. He's awaiting execution. He writes a letter to Timothy, a dear son in the faith, wanting, him to, wanting to impart the important things to him before he dies. I mean, Paul's thinking, how do I make sure that Timothy runs the race, makes it to the end? How do I make sure he runs the race? Well, in this chapter we're going to look at today, chapter 3, Paul highlights three things. How are you going to run the race, Timothy? Son, know your enemy. Stand firm and sharpen your weapon. And because the Bible is God's word to us as well, this is the question for us, right? Well, how do we run the race? Well, from chapter 3, the answer is, know your enemy, stand firm and sharpen your weapon. Let's get going with the first point there, know your enemy. Now, in in the the first nine verses of this passage, right, Paul, it's pretty full on, isn't it? And Paul's preparing Timothy for some pretty tough times that are coming. Let's have a look at verse 1 in our Bibles. If you've got them there, I'm going to be referring to it a little bit. Don't just trust me. Let's have a look at God's Word. Verse 1. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. No, it's not the greatest news to hear, is it? It's really, oh, okay, thanks. Timothy, you're going to have a pretty tough go of it. Now, this term, last days, right, what does that mean? can be a bit confusing, but... 
In the New Testament, this term last days refers to the period between Christ's death and resurrection and his second coming. Okay? So Timothy was living in the last days and we are living in the last days. And Paul's saying from now on, there's going to be a general attitude of opposition towards people who follow Jesus. And there's actually going to be some quite intense seasons of opposition as well that will ebb and flow. So this particular wave of opposition that's coming at Timothy, it's coming in the form of people. The scripture says here, in the form of evil men. And they oppose God and his truth. And Paul's writing to Timothy to say, one, they're out there. Don't be naive, be warned. And this is what they're like. You've got to know your enemy. Sun Tzu, the ancient Chinese war general, wrote a book called The Art of War. He lived about 500 BC. And he said these pretty famous words. If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. Right. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. Okay, so there are people that are going to be against us. Well, what are they like? In verses 2 to 4, Paul uses 19 expressions, right, to detail them. Now, don't worry, we're not going to look at every single expression and look over in detail. We're going to look at a few and then get the whole sort of general gist of what's going on. Let's have a look at verse 2 in our Bibles. At the beginning of verse 2 and at the end of verse 4, it's kind of bracketed, right? Paul says they're lovers of self, verse 2, not lovers of God, verse 4. So ultimately, these people coming after Timothy... They're going to be incredibly selfish people. Their love is totally misdirected. Instead of loving God and loving others, they're just focused on themselves. Now, the first three expressions in verse 2 expand on that kind of meaning of self-love. What does that really look like? Well, it's boastful, proud, abusive, only concerned with their own accomplishments, right? Not interested in anybody else, only concerned with what they're doing, and while telling you, very concerned with making, you know, putting you down making you feel inferior and themselves superior. I think we've all probably felt that. Next five terms Paul uses seem to refer to family, right? You see they're disobedient to parents. Now, us modern folks, we think, what's out of place? What's that doing there? But uh, God commands us that we obey our parents, particularly in our youth. Ungrateful is there, meaning kind of just unable to appreciate. You know, it's never good enough. Can't take pleasure in anything. Unholy, it could mean sort of heartless or irreverent. Unforgiving, meaning, particularly in the context of a family, not even willing to come to the negotiating table. No, you know what they did, I am not budging. Now the rest of the terms in verses 3 and 4 describe in detail what pride looks like. It's, It's not a pretty picture. So in summary, these people that are coming after Timothy, they're completely turned in on themselves. Might like to think of a a hedgehog, or for us Aussies, an echidna, right, that rolls on into itself, into a ball, and presents only the sharp spines to those on the outside, keeping the warmth and softness for itself. Now, if a person's like that, right, all like that, boastful, arrogant, swollen with pride, they'll never sacrifice themselves to serve anybody else, will they? Now, God's order is, that we love him first, our neighbour second, and ourselves last. If we reverse that order of first and third, our neighbour in the middle is bound to suffer. So what? Well, what's the solution to this? See, only the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, 
offers a radical solution to this. What needs to happen? We've got to be born again. We've got to become a new creation, which involves being turned inside out, right? From self to unself, from self-centered to God-centered. And when we do that, we'll love our neighbor as God does. So the people coming after Timothy and the people opposed to Jesus and his followers today ultimately suffer from misdirected love. And I don't really really want to say this, but the sad truth is these people are in the church as well. That's what Paul describes here in verses 5 through to 9. Unfortunately, people who are completely self-involved can be religious too. Now, it may not come to a surprise to many of you guys who have been in churches. I hope not this one. But uh, you see, this is the danger of removing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ from religion. What are you left with? False religion. And it is ugly. It's hideous. It stinks. That's how you get rampant racism in the church or pedophilia, cover-ups, pride, arrogance, horrible hypocrisy. Remove the gospel from religion. That's what you're left with, right? And it's always been the case. In the Old Testament, we see God very angry with his people. He speaks through the prophets to his people. What were they doing? Well, they're going into the temple, worshipping him in one moment, and then as soon as they leave in the next moment, worshipping idols and oppressing his people. He couldn't stand it. We see it in the Pharisees in the New Testament, right, in Jesus' day. Very respected religious people, utterly focused on the minute detail of the law. They'd lost the heart of God. Jesus reserved his harshest comments for these people. Now, these kind of people, they're in Timothy's day and they're in ours as well. Check out verse 5. Let's have a look at that together. Paul says, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And what does that mean? Well, it kind of means they've got the outward signs, right? Having a form of godliness, it looks like true Christian faith. They come to church, sing the songs, maybe put money in the bags, say the right words, but on the inside, it's not there. They have the outward show without the inward reality. But you see, true religion, true Christian faith, it's not the opposite either. Oh, we don't worry about what we do. It's all just, you know, between me and God. It's all about my personal relationship with God. No, true faith combines the inner source of power with our external actions. That's powerful stuff. All right, so, so far, how do we run the race? Know your enemy. Be prepared. Don't be naive. All right, so what is the next thing Paul wants Timothy to know and therefore us? Stand firm. Now, this is a really um, central theme to to Timothy. So you would have heard us talk about this in the last couple of weeks. You're going to hear it again. I'm not going to apologize because we all need to be reminded of this. Stand firm. And in chapter 3, particularly, this is what... Paul means. He means, remember the truth you were taught, Timothy, and remember who taught it to you. Stand firm in these things. Let's have a look at verse 10. Paul says, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. Paul's saying, you, Timothy, you are to be different. You're not to be anything like those people I've spent nine verses describing. No, you are to be different. You're to stand firm. You're not to be shaken. The world will try and mold you. People will come against you, even from within your own church, which is rough. Resist them and stand firm. Stand firm till the end. Many of you would have heard of a man named William Wilberforce. Very famous. He was a British politician. 
um, who lived in the early 1800s, who fought for the abolition of the slave trade. And he was convinced that slavery was wrong, particularly after his conversion to the Christian faith. And he was convinced that God despised it. He fought for decades with other men and women who fought very hard alongside him. They fought against incredible opposition. I mean, it's hard to imagine this, you know, today that people would oppose that, but oh my, they did. Suffered incredible social isolation and real major health issues. But Wilberforce and his friends, they stood firm to the end. It took decades. It's a wonderful story. You must read about it. But they stood firm until the end. Timothy, you and I, we've got to stand firm in the face of opposition. Stand firm in the truth. You see, Timothy actually had a solid rock to stand firm on. The teaching he received from Paul was authentic, and so was the teacher. We just read verse 10, right? Paul says, You know my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings. Now, you, you could be excused to kind of read this and going, this guy's got tickets on himself. Why is he list, listing off all these things about himself? A bit arrogant, yeah? Why is he doing that? Well, because his life is actually the proof that authenticates his teaching, right? The fruit of Paul's teaching was his life. That's why he's constantly saying throughout his life, look at me. His, his life and his willingness to face persecution. See how the good news of Jesus Christ changed Saul from Christian killer to Christ follower. Such a contrast to the people we've been hearing about right in the last paragraph. And we're supposed to read it that way. These people, false teachers, these people that Paul's been describing, would they have suffered for their message? For their teaching? No way. What do their lives look like? Very, very self-absorbed. Self-centered. See, Paul's life and willingness to face suffering are proof that his teaching is genuine. And I don't know about you, I think, yeah, that's, these are good tests for anyone who wants to be in ministry, for anyone who wants to teach the Bible, wants to lead in God's church. I reckon you should expect that from us. You should expect us to practice what we preach. Now, of course, none of us are perfect. I mean, if you know Bruce well enough, you'll know that. But if you are... No, I'm kidding. Gee whiz, just talk to my wife. But um, let's, have, let's, let's not be ridiculous. Let's have realistic expectations, okay, of our leaders. But I think you should expect our lives to match up with what we're teaching. I think that's probably fair enough. Within reason, you know, we must be in the fight with you, daily struggling to slay sin. But here's the thing, though, you know, what you expect from us... Surely, you know, you've got to expect of yourselves. I mean, wouldn't that be the very definition of hypocrisy to expect one thing from your leaders and a totally different standard for yourself? You know, we all must strive to live lives that reflect what we believe. Uh, when we were growing up, there was an older couple in our church who were very heavily involved in the ministry of the church. I mean, they were great, very, very well respected. They led on countless mission trips, involved in small groups, uh, lay preachers. But more than that, they were just very godly, wonderful people. And uh, when my parents split, they kind of made themselves our unofficial grandparents. We had, we had a great set of grandparents, but we got another one. And these people were amazing. I mean, they loved and loved on us and served our family for years. I reckon they had us over for Christmas Eve for about 25 years in a row. Wonderful people. And um, they were all, I knew they were always there if we needed to call on them, and we did. And they were there to love and support us. The kind of people that I'd put money on the fact that 
they would have prayed for us kids every single night. Their lives, now they weren't perfect, of course, but their lives just lined up with what they were teaching. See, they beautifully modeled the gospel to us and they sacrificed to do it. And now, um, both of them, you know, they're, they're well into their 80s, they're quite elderly. And unfortunately, the wife has been suffering from dementia for quite a while. It's getting worse. It's horrible. And even though the husband himself is very elderly, uh, he's devoted the rest of his life to caring for her, caring for her needs. That's, it's pretty thankless work sometimes. It's hard, frustrating work. She looks at the, the kids and the grandkids blankly and often him in that way too. But this man of God is very adamant that it's his duty of care to care for her for the rest of her or his life. Now, of course, um, not all elderly couples who are in a similar situation can care with the same kind of capacity, right? I'm not, not saying that that should be expected, but that servant-hearted nature could be there, right? I mean, this man's life is continuing to line up with what he's taught his whole life. He's continuing to commend the gospel to me and others, and it's beautiful. Here's the kicker. His beliefs have made him a better man. Wouldn't you want someone to say that about you? You know, I long for my wife and my kids and my friends to say that. You know, his beliefs have made him a better man. It does beg the question, doesn't it? How are our lives lining up with what we believe? What are the things God is calling us to do? Are we being sensitive to the Spirit's leading in this way? Are our lives reflecting the truth? Are we willing to sacrifice to go out of our way to serve others, even when it hurts, even when it might put us in the firing line. Right, Paul says some pretty scary words in verse 12. Let's have a look at it together. You know, when Bruce allocated the chapters to uh, preach on, I read, read through this chapter. I think, yeah, I know it pretty well. And I saw verse 12. I thought, oh no, I've got to preach on that. Whew, they're tough words. Let's read it. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Really? Now, did Paul really mean that? You know, I was tempted, I looked at lots of different translations, went back to the original Greek this week and thought maybe he means everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be materially blessed. Maybe he means that. But no, it does not mean that at all. This is the truth of Scripture. This kind of hits us, right? And we think, whew. It begs the question again, doesn't it? What if I'm not suffering? What if I am in Christ Jesus, but I'm not being persecuted? I'm not suffering for my faith. What does that mean? Well, it could mean two things. Firstly, it might mean that we're in a holy huddle. Favorite term of mine, I like it. It means that we've completely retreated into the Christian bubble, right? Into church world. We very rarely interact with anyone outside of our Christian friends. Now, that's impossible to do, but so when we do interact with people outside of our, the church world, it's not significant. We don't really share much about a Christian faith, nothing of, you know, of substance. We just, you know... Now, how can we shine like a light in the darkness if we never venture into the darkness? You imagine, what if Jesus did that? Where would we be? How could we possibly grow God's church through the gospel if we never meaningfully interact with anyone outside the holy huddle? Okay, so that might might be you, or or you might not be suffering for your faith because we might be compromising. 
We might be completely in the world. We're not standing out because we look the same. We're not being persecuted for our faith because people can't see anything to persecute. So we've got to resist the urge to compromise and resist the urge to retreat into the holy huddle. What do we got to do? Stand firm. And how we stand firm is actually by moving forward. Verse 14, let's have a look, says, continue in what you've learned and become convinced of. So much like if you're currently in good health and you want to stay healthy, what do you got to do? Continue to eat well and exercise. Well, how do you stand firm? By continuing in the gospel, in the truth of what you've learned and pass it on to others. All right, leads us to our final point. So question is, how do we run the race? Know your enemy. Don't be naive. People out, are going to be out there that are going to be against us. That's okay. Prepare yourself for it. Stand firm in the truth. Don't waver from it. And sharpen your weapon. Now, what does that mean? Well, the final couple of verses uh, in this passage speak about the place of God's word in the life of the pastor, so that's a Timothy, and in the life of the Christian, that's every one of us. Now, the book of Ephesians, which Paul also wrote, talks about God's word being the sword of the spirit. I love that. Now, I'm a bloke, right? So I like that, right? Sword of the spirit. Yeah, that's a man. So we've got to swing this blade when we're faced with false teaching and the world's and Satan's lies, okay? We've got to stand firm while wielding the sword, which is the word of God. Now, verse 16, let's have a look at this together. Second last verse. It's very well known. Let's check it out. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So, all... What, where, where does Scripture come from? All Scripture is God-breathed. I love that, like, breathe. From the very essence of God, or God-breathed, it's from Him. It's not somebody's opinion of what God might have thought. Somebody, No, it's God's Word. And so what? What does that mean? Well, it means we can't pick and choose bits we like and bits we don't like when it comes to God's Word. Now, um, my two eldest kids, when, when it comes to mealtimes... It can be a real battle. Uh, if you've got young kids, you might know what I'm talking about. Fussy eaters. It is very difficult, right, when it comes to... My wife's an amazing cook. When I cook, I think I do okay. But, man, and their kids are weird, right? Okay, can I say that they're funny? Because one, if there's meat and veg on the plate, one will eat the meat and veg. I understand that. But the other will eat the veg and not the meat. I don't get that. So, but either way, right, <laughs> not every meal's like this, but a lot of meals, it's just a battle. It's frustrating work. They can be really choosy when it comes to food we cannot be like that when we come to god's word it's part of the reason why at some mats we like to preach through books of the bible you know we do topical series from time to time and they're awesome we love doing them but we try generally to preach through books of the bible why we try and let god set the agenda you know this this helps us avoid the temptation to skip parts of the bible that might be hard to swallow right so now, because where's, where's the Bible from? God breathed, from, from the very essence of God. It's from him, therefore it has purpose. If it's not from God, I don't think it has purpose. You can argue with me about that if you want to, but I think if it's not from God, forget about it. But because it is from God, it has immense purpose. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Put simply, right, it's our authority. It's authoritative. And you should expect us to use it in that way. So if a, a leader challenges you 
lovingly, and I want to emphasise lovingly, I hope and pray it's done in that way, if a leader challenges you lovingly about your actions or about what you might believe, use in the Bible, don't be surprised. I reckon you should expect that from us. And if the Word of God ever contradicts something you think, guess who's wrong? It's you. And that's a good thing. Don't be bummed out by that. It's great to be corrected by God and his word. You see, if you're never challenged by God and his word, you've probably invented your own God and been very selected about the parts of the Bible you're reading. Okay, so we've got to, we must use God's word, sharpen this weapon he's given us in our own daily walk as well. It's authoritative in our corporate meetings, small groups, church, all those things, right? It's authoritative there, purposeful there, but it also has purpose in our daily lives and struggles. God's word is powerful. Now, me and a few uh, night church guys, we get together on a Saturday morning, most Saturday mornings, for a bit of fitness and to encourage each other to be men of God. It's not easy these days. We want to encourage each other to fight the good fight of faith. And every time we meet, we have a Bible verse that we reflect on or what we like to call a vice verse. Right? Uh, I'm just like you. I've got struggles. We've all got our vices, our struggles here. But we meet them with our verses, with Bible verses, right? We meet these vices with God's truth and destroy them. We, sh- we wield the sword of truth to defeat our struggles. God's word is powerful. If you hear nothing else this morning, please hear this. God's word is powerful to equip you in your daily life and struggles. That's what verse 17 says. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God's word is, a, is powerful to equip you in your daily life and struggles. Let me give you some examples. To those who are just feeling overworked and stressed, we've all been there. God's word says, or Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. To the person addicted to pornography, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. You're not going to find satisfaction clicking on the mouse, looking at that stuff. You will find satisfaction in God. That's truth. To the person believing the lie that what they've done is unforgivable. No Christian does what you do. Oh, I reckon that is Satan's favorite ploy, right? Oh, can't believe no one does what you do. Do you call yourself a Christian? Ever felt that? What if that's you? What if you feel a man, I can't live with myself? Well, what does scripture say to you? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Did you hear that? Not some unrighteousness, not socially acceptable sins that are kind of looked on okay within the church. No, all unrighteousness. You hear the truth of God's word? Battle Satan's lies, the world's lies, with the truth of God's word. What about to the Christian just feeling deflated, feeling defeated by sin? I'm Go home, read Romans 6, okay? This is what it says. Sin shall not be your master. Why? Because you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Combat the enemy's lies with the truth of divine scripture. Or what about the person just simply struggling to trust God? Where is my life at? Who hasn't been there? Where are you, God? 
Scripture says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Preach that to yourself. You see, uh, if you're anything like me, you get distracted. Right? Life is busy, hey? So many things, so many voices coming at us. But if we truly understood that right here, we have the very words of God at our fingertips. The very words of God. If we truly understood the power of this, the power of God's word to transform our minds, to renew our minds, to transform our hearts, wouldn't we become experts, samurais, in wielding this weapon that God has given us? So, how do we run the race? Well, know your enemy. Don't be naive. There'll be people out there who are against us. That's okay. Stand firm in the truth of what you've learned. And finally, sharpen your weapon. Equip yourself with God's word. Become an expert in wielding this weapon he's given us. I'm going to pray that this week we would, we would strive to do those things in his strength. Would you pray with me together? Let's do it. Heavenly Father, we... Uh, we thank you for your word that equips us. It's use, useful. It's useful in uh, these corporate settings like this, but it's useful in our daily lives as well. Father, there are people out there who don't like us, who are coming against us. That's okay. Help us to serve them as you would have us serve them. Help us to stand firm in the truth, not to waver. It's hard, but and we need your help to do it. Would your spirit empower us to do it? And finally, Lord, give us a hunger and a thirst for your word. Amen.